WNYC Studios is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Science Friday is supported by Sunbasket. No matter your lifestyle, Sunbasket caters to your kind of healthy. With delicious meal plans like paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, and vegan with quick and easy recipes, you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. Go to sunbasket.com slash Friday today to get up to $60 off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Coming up in a little bit, Emily Oster, author of Crib Sheet, is here to answer your parenting questions with research. What the evidence says about long-term benefits of breastfeeding, the effects of daycare on development. What would you like to know? You make the call, but only if you make the call. 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. First, you might have heard the news this week that as many as one million species, both plants and animals, are now at risk of extinction, according to a new UN report on global biodiversity. That number includes 40% of all amphibian species, 33% of corals, and around 10% of insects. Now, you might assume that this type of devastating species loss could only come as a result of one thing, climate change. But as the report highlights, it's a perfect storm of deforestation, changes in land and sea use, hunting and poaching, pollution, the introduction of invasive species. In short, a whole bunch of human activities that, in addition to rising global temperatures, are causing species to disappear at a rate, quote, tens to hundreds times higher than what we've seen over the last 10 million years. For example, over a thousand amphibian species, sometimes thought of as the canary in the coal mine of biodiversity crisis, have been newly assessed as threatened or endangered, according to a new study out this week in Current Biology. Walter Yetz, who is the lead author on that study and also one of the authors on the recent UN Biodiversity Report, joins me to talk about them both. He is director of the Center for Biodiversity and Global Change at Yale University. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Now, the report highlights uh, say one million species are threatened with extinction. What, what proportion of species on Earth is that? The report assumed that about 8 million species are, are on Earth, and that's obviously a very highly debated number. We could have a whole separate program on the <laughs> scientific debate on, on that. And uh, uh, However, I think it's, it's fair enough to, to use it as an initial ballpark. Uh, many scientists would argue it's, it's many, many more, perhaps twice, three times, four times as many that are uh, yet to be discovered. Only about one, a little over one uh, million are described right now. So uh, this uh, report is making the assumption, well, there are, let's say there are about 8 million species in total. Um, we have assessed about 100,000 species formally to date through an expert process. And of, out of that, if we sort of run the proportions against the various groups and, and then uh, uh, extrapolate from there, 
then that would get us to about a million out of the eight wow. million species uh, threatened. And, and was this very surprising about how, just how many would become extinct? Oh, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. And, and I worry. And in fact, our study points out that the, the number may even be larger, uh, certainly for amphibians. That's what we find. And we can talk more about that in a moment. It's uh, not surprising at all. And I would say it's actually a conservative estimate because, you know, uh, insects, for example, have only been assessed in a very limited way. They're actually the, the, the percentage, and I think you mentioned it, that comes from uh, that's that's used for insects is about 10% being thought of as being threatened right now. But they're really um, the 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 ground portion of of uh, of that eight uh, eight million species that are being talked about here. And uh, that 10% estimate right now comes from a very small number. It's right. mostly European bees and uh, a lot of tropical biodiversity has not even been assessed at all. You know, I, I think people may be surprised to, talk, to see how much of human activity is involved in the extinctions of these and not just climate change um, is, but the, the, we mostly hear about climate change in the environmental movement. Is, is it so focused on climate change as some of these other human activities like poaching and pollution, which are once a big deal for environmentalists, don't get enough attention? Well, I, I wouldn't argue that, but uh, we need to think about climate change. And some of the species threats that we, we are talking about here are actually climate change driven. We are already seeing the effects of, of climate change on, on some species populations. And um, this is the big uh, issue to think about going mm. forward. But uh, already now, we we have seen over 800 species. Uh, vertebrate uh, extinctions since uh, the medieval times uh, way, or as you said, orders of magnitude you summarized it beautifully, orders of magnitude more than expected uh, uh, from a background rate of extinctions and uh, um, the, we have very clear, a very clear connection between these, these, these various uh, um, impacts that you have mentioned uh, deforestation, uh, land use change, uh, invasions, etc, etc on uh, on species so the evidence is there and uh, i agree with you that there should be more attention to yeah. the benefits that we humans directly get from nature and we get them now that we are losing day by day by day uh, through stuff that's actually much in some ways you could argue much easier to manage and control than climate change. And there's no reason, there's obviously we need to think and, and do something about climate change. But right. a lot of the impacts we're talking about here that are driving species ex to extinction and make us lose nature's benefits are due to local and regional decisions that could be very uh, easily affected by, by us getting involved, for example, as, as people. I don't think people really appreciate what is out there in, the, in biodiversity, why biodiversity and loss of it is so crucial. What, I mean, there are, there are drugs and, and potential cures and stuff out there in nature where we have seen them before, which we may never even know about because they'll be gone. That's right. And and uh, don't forget, there are some species we haven't even discovered yet, and yeah. we may lose them before we even, even discovered them and before we could enter them into the equation. And, uh, um, you know, the the benefits we we uh, uh, get from nature are, are, are manifold. And uh, I really, it was great to see that report come out. It was the hard work by hundreds of scientists over the past years. Um, it is an IPCC type process. And thankfully, the governments are now involved in, in actually discussing this report and thinking about uh, then policy uh, 
uh, changes from there. So it's a wake-up call, and it's a, a really important wake-up call about the ongoing loss of biodiversity of species and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are talking about, for example, there was already a, an earlier UN report on pollination services. So the bees, for example, are uh, providing billions of dollars of pollination services to us humans annually. Um, if you think about uh, insect feeding animals and frogs actually are, are, are a really important well, group get, in that let's regard. Get, let's yeah. get to that. Your, your amphibian study, you had a published a separate study this week about amphibians, which we always think as the canaries, right, in the coal mine about the state of the environment. Exactly. So think about amphibians, so frogs, toads, uh, salamanders, etc. They are actually, you would think, well, is, isn't, what's that amphibian species going to do for me? Uh, however, as a, as a group, they are um, not just canaries about the health of the environment overall, and thereby many other uh, benefits that we derive from nature, but they also carry benefits very, uh, very directly. So they are really important pest controlling um, uh, animals that uh, provide um, unmeasured, unfortunately, services uh, on, a, on, a, on a daily annual basis everywhere uh, where they occur. They are also known to uh, have a whole range of compounds that have uh, medical uh, purposes. So think about, many of you may have heard about the uh, poison dart frogs. So uh, there are some species where, where a single, the skin of a single animal could, would have enough toxins to kill, could tell, to kill 10 humans. And uh, uh, there is actually another example closer to home, not quite as toxic, thankfully, the uh, uh, Houston toad, and highly threatened now, but uh, similar to that poison dart frog that I mentioned, this species and others uh, have toxins, uh, serotonins that have uh, been really serving really important purposes in medical research, and some of their uh, natural compounds have uh, uh, supported a whole range of drugs. Why are they? Why are they, you know, so so to speak, being singled out by nature to to disappear so quickly? You know, they are getting hit from all sides. Uh, amphibians are already getting it from all sides. They are highly impacted by, uh, say, species invasions, uh, invasive ants, for example, tackling a lot of the the, the uh, juvenile frogs here in, in in parts of the United States and elsewhere. They are. Uh, getting hit by land use change directly. They're often uh, distributed, uh, have very narrow ranges. They're, they're very restricted in their geographic range compared to birds, for example. Their range is on average about six times smaller. So uh, any human impacts that are happening, any deforestation that's happening is much more quickly going to wipe out the frog than it's going to wipe out a bird species. And moreover, as they, are, they have a really uh, um, interesting physiology that makes them very sensitive to the microclimatic conditions around them. So any small changes, even if they're not losing habitat directly, but uh, mm -hmm. something may have happened a, a few hundred yards away, may affect their uh, microclimate and uh, thereby uh, impact their population. So they're really dropping uh, um, like, like uh, flies right now. And, and, and right. Uh, they are among the vertebrates, the group that's already seen the most extinctions in the last 100 years. Well, one quick question before we go. Is there any way to turn this around by you know, having governments or people become more aware and, and, to, and do something about this? Well, uh, first of all, I think thanks to, to, to new research, uh, new remote sensing, for example, uh, new scientific approaches, the sort of big data modeling that we and others are trying to do, you can actually now begin to pinpoint the species that are most uh, strongly 
uh, threatened uh, from extinct by extinction, and there uh, uh, pinpoint the places uh, thereby that as we need to do triage, we never have enough funds or resources or time to do conservation. We can more effectively identify the places where we want to be active. And I think as we identify these places, uh, we all can get involved in uh, lobbying for this group and lobbying for these places. And some of these uh, uh, places are actually close to home. I mentioned that Houston toad. There are many other species close to home um, that are uh, affected by uh, habitat loss. And uh, we can get involved now uh, by supporting agents, uh, supporting organizations that are setting up uh, conservation activities by uh, uh, perhaps even uh, in our own y- backyard, uh, be do stuff that is just uh, mm-hmm. more supportive of, of nature and wildlife. Thank you very much, Professor Yetz, for taking time to be with us today. Happy to. Thank Walter you. Yetz, spelled J-E-T-Z, who is uh, in, very much involved in doing this. He's director of the Center for Biodiversity and Global Change at uh, Yale University. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to answer your parenting questions. We, to swaddle or not to swaddle? Are you really long? Are there long-term benefits of breastfeeding? Emily Astor, author of the new book, Crib Sheet, is here to take your questions. Give us a call, 844-724-8255, 844-SIGHT-TALK. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. If you're a new parent, I'm guessing you've had one of those nights every now and then, and you're up at 3.30 a.m., the baby is screaming as you ask the Internet a question you've never thought to ask before. Are pacifiers bad for your baby? What about that weird breathing? That normal or not, or is it time to head to the emergency room? And once you Google it, you get the blogs, the random websites, a few news articles. But whom do you trust? My next guest, Emily Oster, is a health economist, a mother of two who's had a lot of those questions. And she's raised her own two kids thinking about them. So she dove into the data. What does the science actually say say about, let's say, co-sleeping or breastfeeding, introducing solid foods, potentially allergenic? allergenic like my throat foods. Um, She wrote about the science of pregnancy in her first book, Expecting Better, and now she's back with Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. And it's not just about the babies. It's about you, too. What research is out there on parents as they fumble through life with a new kid with the emotional tank running dry? And what about dealing with with the grandparents. We want your questions. Give us a call, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. Emily Astor, professor of economics at Brown, author of Crib Sheet. We have an excerpt up at our website, sciencefriday.com slash cribsheet. Dr. Astor, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being here. Um, there's a lot of mythology about uh, about parenting out there, isn't there? There is. There seems like sometimes there's only mythology and not facts, but there are some facts. (laughs) And so what headed you down this road to take this all on? So I I had kids was sort of the short answer to that question. Uh, And I found that I was trying to answer a lot of the questions that that new parents have or in the first book that, that pregnant people had. And I 
didn't find the answers out there that I wanted, or I didn't find the synthesis of, of the data. And so I started doing a lot of that myself, looking at all the papers, reading them, thinking about which pieces of evidence were better than, than others. And then ultimately, uh, the the book is really a result of that. You know, you, your writing reminds me of uh, Michael Lewis of Moneyball, who had to go through all the mythology by looking at the data and change the old paradigm. I'll t- I'll take that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's let's dig into this. Let's dig into some of these topics. You cite an interesting study in the book, which links swaddling to more REM sleep. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the swaddle stuff is super interesting. So swaddling, for people who are listening who are not parents, refers to wrapping up your baby pretty tightly in uh, in blankets, and people do that because they think it improves sleep. Uh, but I wanted to see if that's if that's true. This sort of seems like something that maybe uh, people would would just say. That'd be an old wives' tale. Uh, but actually, it's it's not. And so um, the the data there is very nice. So researchers. Uh, wrapped up some babies in some swaddles, and they put sensors on them and also videoed them. So, a very comfortable baby, I'm sure, sleeping in the midst of video cameras covered in sensors. Uh, but they can look at the same baby when they're swaddled and when they're not. And what they see is that when the baby is swaddled, they have the same kind of initial arousal. So when babies are sleeping, at some point they'll sort of sigh or move a little bit, and then later they'll startle, and then later they'll wake up. And that when they are swaddled, the little movements are less likely to turn into big movements, and they are less likely to turn into waking up, whereas if they're not swaddled, that's more likely to happen. So it seems like that's the mechanism by which the swaddling is actually improving the length of sleep for babies and mm-hmm. for moms and yeah. dads. Right. Also good. Also good. <laughs> let's go to the phones because there's so many people. Uh, let's go to uh, to Anna in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Anna. Hello. Hi. Go ahead. Um, I have a question for Dr. Astor. I have a 13 month old um, who uh, is still breastfeeding, and I know that um, in general in the U.S. we tend to aim for that first year, and so we've made it that far. Um, but I know that in other countries and the World Health Organization recommends two years. So I'm kind of confused about like. Is he getting a lot of additional benefit now for that next year or so? And what other you know uh, reasons to continue? As he he seems to still enjoy it, but it's a lot of work for mom. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So uh, breastfeeding. Okay. So um, so I I talk in the book. Uh, that the best evidence that we have about breastfeeding is really about breastfeeding at all versus not at all. Um, So by going past a year, you've already gone really pretty far. Uh, And even when we look at the question of breastfeeding at all or or not, the benefits seem to accrue mostly early on in life. So there's less uh, diarrhea, maybe fewer ear infections, fewer allergies um, for for the first year. But there some of the things that you're told about the benefits of breastfeeding, like IQ, obesity, uh, reductions, those actually don't seem to be borne out in the best data, even if we look just at the basic question of breastfeeding at all, let alone looking at what we'd call extended extended breastfeeding. Um, to answer the question about policy, uh, I think there's a reason that the WHO pushes further than the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is that in places with less clean water uh, in developing countries, there's there's more benefits to breastfeeding because otherwise the kids will be having more uh, more unclean water. But in the U.S., I think there just isn't a lot of evidence that would suggest that continuing uh, is going to have a lot of 
benefits for your baby unless you want to do it, which was is great and is a good reason to, to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a tweet from someone who wanted to know what is uh, the best way to wean your kid off of breastfeeding? I, unfortunately, that is something I actually looked in the data. There is not a lot of data on that. Uh, some kids will just decide that they, they want to stop. Uh, if you have an older kid, they often won't decide they want to stop, and people have a lot of uh, suggestions. Um, some of it's just going to be about what is going to work for your kid. Let me just go to a quick call from a Rainbow in Berkeley, California. Hi, welcome. Hi, this is Rainbow, and I just, I'm an MPH, Master's in Public Health, as well as a PhD in Nutrition, and um, I have um, read about some of Dr. Oster's work, and it seems to discount a lot of the nutritional benefits, especially the high-fiber content, which helps promote a healthy microbiome for the new baby, and also it just seems to discount like the trouble that women go to to breastfeed, and that it kind of distorts the WHO's. Um, standing that breast is best and that breastfeeding is important for at least the first year, but definitely longer. Um, so that's my comment. Thank you very much. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, so I will say what I try to do in the book is really cut cut into the data and what does the data actually say about the the benefits. I think the discussion of the microbiome is super interesting, but also we haven't we don't know that much about that yet. And to the extent there are benefits, we would expect them to show up in outcomes. So the book is pretty focused on outcomes, um, and uh, and I. I I will reiterate, I actually think it's really important that we provide supports for women who want to breastfeed. I think in some ways, the most frustrating part of this is that we're telling people this is so important and then making it really difficult for them. So so I actually have a whole chapter in the book about how to make breastfeeding work if you want that to work for you. But what I think is is more troubling is a lot of women end up feeling very bad if they can't breastfeed or if it doesn't work for them. I think that shame is not helpful early on in life. Your kid's uh, life. You know, I was looking through your book, and I tried to keep track of how many times the word breastfeeding was mentioned. Uh, I lost track after, I don't know, 20, 35 times. People really are asking most about this. Uh, and, and I can see from our calls, I think we may have even one more. John from Cincinnati. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. It's uh, finally nice to get on the program. Um, uh, my first daughter, she's three months old. Uh, she's a little colicky, and she has eczema a little bit all on her chest and neck. Um, could she be allergic to something that mom is eating, such as dairy or eggs, and would it be best to eliminate those foods from mom's diet, or would we be? Would it be best to switch to uh, formula? Let me just say in advance that um, Dr. Aster is not a doctor. <laughs> Emily That's Aster true. is not a doctor, and she can't really make any really recommendations individually, but we'll, we'll speak in general terms, right, Doc? Emily? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what I was going to say is, I was, in fact, exactly going to say I'm not a doctor, um, but when you look at the evidence uh, on on colic and uh, and what kinds of things affect colic, there is a bit of evidence that um, these kind of elimination diets for, for moms can have some impact on colic. It's not super compelling and the effects are not that big, but it's not that hard to test. So um, so if you're if you if someone was in this situation, let me veer away from saying for you, but if someone was in this situation, um, sometimes what, what people will recommend is try dropping something for a few days and seeing if if things mm. improve. Um, and that that could work, uh, it might it might not. And most babies do get over colic um, not that long from from three months. So hopefully that will improve on its own even in the absence of any dietary 
changes. Let me go to a tweet from uh, Jessica Rodriguez. Actually, she, she mentions on Facebook, and she says, Safe sleep on back, nothing in crib, is so important, but it's the opposite of how my newborn wants to sleep, snuggled in blankets with mom. How do you help newborns sleep safely so I can get sleep, too? Yeah, this is such a hard this is such a hard space because especially newborns really struggle to sleep and parents and parents struggle to sleep and we do have these recommendations about safe sleep and and uh, and they have a bunch of different pieces. The baby should be on its back, alone in the in the crib, um, in the parents' room. There's a, there's a few of them. Um, so I, th- I I will say I think the evidence in favor of back sleeping is very compelling. So the effects on reductions in SIDS, which come from a bunch of different kinds of sources, are are really convincing. Um, so even though it is true a lot of babies prefer to sleep on their stomach. Um, it, the evidence suggests that the recommendation for back sleeping has been really important for for policy. The the question about co sleeping, which I get a lot, um, this ends up being very uh, fraught in the discussion. So you'll see sort of one camp telling you like this is the most important thing you can do to be with your baby is to co sleep with them, and then others will say this is extremely dangerous. Um, and I think what the evidence shows is that there are some safer and less safe ways to do this. So if you're going to co-sleep with your baby, it should be in a bed with no covers and no pillows, and you should not smoke or, or drink alcohol. Um, if you do that, I think the data does suggest that there, there are some risks, although they are relatively small. And I think that we sometimes struggle to, to talk about uh, risks like this and to, to think about them. But I think in some ways, done as safely as possible, you might think about the risk as kind of smaller than the risk you're taking from putting your kid in the car. And so I, there, there's a sense in which parents kind of need to think that through for themselves and make the choice that's right, that's right for them. Eight four four seven two four eight two five five is is our number. Uh, talking with uh, <clears throat> Emily Oster about crib sheet, a data driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Um, you know, I'm an older uh, I'm I'm an older parent, and I remember T. Barry Brazelton was my bible when I was growing up, and I've seen a lot of stuff that I I talk to my kids who are also adults about that take it. They take it for granted that this is the common knowledge when they didn't, you know, years ago, people were talking about it in different ways. Um, do you, do we have a, you know, are you the new Dr. Spock or T. Barry Breselton or? Not yet. I mean, I, you know, I think um, I... I'm not sure there will ever be a, a new Dr. Dr. Spock, and I certainly don't don't think it's uh, it's me. But I, I do think that there's um, that there's a space here in the in the sort of modern era for um, for kind of c- trying to collate some of the of the noise of these sort of studies that are that are everywhere. And as people are more interested in making evidence-based choices, helping people understand what what does the evidence actually say, not just what does one study say, but what does the whole literature say about some question. Right. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with uh, Emily Oster about her new book, uh, Crib Sheet. Uh, so, many, so many people are calling in. Um, Camille Silberman on Twitter writes, is there a golden window for sleep training, like four to six months? Just curious. Yeah, not not in the data. Um, so uh, so there's a 
a point at which when kids are very small, um, some people will tell you you can sleep train uh, like a, a 10-week-old to go to sleep at night, but a 10-week-old typically cannot sleep all the way through through the night. Um, most kids are not going to be able to sleep all the way through the night, you know, 12 hours uh, until something like six or six or seven or seven months. Um, so depending on exactly what you're trying to accomplish, um, the age is going to differ. Uh, I think many people anecdotally find it much harder to sleep train much older kids um, because they are uh, able to to talk and and negotiate. So maybe the window is before they can mm. explain why you shouldn't do it. Let's go to a quick question before the break. Kelly in Sacramento. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. Um, my daughter is four years old, and um, through the years, she'll go through periods where she cries a lot. Most of the time when I drop her off at school, she doesn't cry. But right now she's in a period where it seems like she's crying about everything. And I'm having a hard time figuring out where's the line between me coddling her and me saying, you know what? Like, I just need to move on. Your crying is becoming an inconvenience every time I say no or every time I have to do something you don't like. But I don't know where that line is. And how do we determine that? And are we coddling our kids too much right now? Yeah, that is a really good question, and I feel that I could have called in with that question <laughs> because, the, you know, I feel like the book sort of stops at three, and actually most of it is about uh, much smaller kids. And I feel like as kids get, as kids get older, some of these questions get much more complicated and much less amenable to to data. So that the data is not going to tell you when is the right time to stop coddling. There's a little bit of uh, of stuff in there around um, discipline. What about younger? What about then younger kids? Crying is a normal thing, right? I mean, that's crying is a normal crying is a normal thing, um, and you know we can think about questions about like discipline, which is sort of related to this. Is you know if you if you want to uh, encourage your kid to not engage in some negative behavior, you know how can you do that? And I think the evidence there would suggest that uh, that the most important thing is consistency. So is if you you know, say, if you do X, Y will happen, that you follow through. If you say, if you throw the cauliflower, I'm going to take away your cookie, you have to take away the cookie. That's different than the question of how should you react to a kid Mm. who cries when you drop them at daycare, where I think probably the best evidence we have is just from what people have told you for, you know, 50 years, which is smile and wave goodbye, and they're going to stop crying when you leave. Mm. And uh, as as your kids get older, are you going to follow them more evidence? Uh, I don't know. I feel like the the data isn't as good on older kids, and the questions are more complicated and more kid specific. So I haven't made any progress on how a second how another book would look. That is interesting. The data is not as good. That itself is a is a commentary. All right, stay with us uh, for after the break. We're talking with Emily Oster, author of Crib Sheet: A Data Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting, from Birth to Preschool. We could all use advice on that. And our number, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. We'll be taking a break. Uh, back with Emily after this break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Emily Oster, health economist at uh, Brown University, about her new book, Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting from Birth to Preschool, which answers a lot of common parenting questions about everything from swaddling to breastfeeding and answers it with evidence-based research. I'd like to bring on another guest now who recently presented her work on the underground market for breast milk at a meeting of the pediatric 
Pediatric Academy Societies in Baltimore. Nikita Sood is a research assistant at Cohen Children's Medical Center as part of Northwell Health in New Hyde Park, New York. She's here in our New York studios. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, it's great to be here. I have to admit something really awful. Okay. <laughs> I never heard about an underground market for breast milk. To be fair, I hadn't either before I started <laughs> I doing this kind of better. research, so you're okay. They, describe the market for me. Yeah, so I mean, I guess for listeners who are unfamiliar, um, a lot of, um, though, even though the science says, you know, encourages breastfeeding for the first six months of life and, at le- and you know, ideally a year, um, not every parent is able to do that. And and so there's this thing called donor breast milk where parents who aren't able to personally supply enough breast milk can get it from another source to feed their infant. And this sort of practice is called milk sharing. And so there's two ways to do it. There's milk banks, which, you know, if you think of them, sound similar to blood banks. It's right. more regulated. Blood is, or the breast milk is pooled. The sc- uh, donors are screened, things like that. But there's also the more popular um, version that's really, really also getting uh, even po- more, more and more popular is informal milk sharing, which is this underground sort of system where um, parents are able to connect directly with one another and exchange breast milk. Um, so a lot of that happens online, whether that's through milk sharing websites or social media sites on Facebook groups and things like that. And so it's done a great job in you know connecting people to breast milk they need, but obviously it's a little concerning too. Well, you have to trust the person you've never seen or talked to. Or yeah. You have known nothing about that person to give your baby breast milk. No, exactly. And in, in an ideal world, you know, you'd be able to trust another parent. And you know, we like to think that, but I think uh, experience has shown that you know you can't really trust everyone that you meet on the internet, unfortunately. And there has been you know some research into whether or not this milk is safe. What what kind of stuff might be unsafe about the milk, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, inherent with any sort of um, exchange of human fluids, there's a risk of contamination, and that's especially true for this informally shared milk. You know, donors aren't screened. The milk isn't tested, and so there's a really high risk of contamination with bacteria, with um, viruses, with even medication and things like that. And so there's actually, um, there's started to be more and more studies um, examining this kind of stuff. And there was, for example, a 2013 study published in Pediatrics that looked at um, milk that was purchased through a milk sharing site online. And mm-hmm. 74% uh, had gram-negative bacteria um, and would have failed, you know, milk bank level criteria. <clears throat> wow. Mm-hmm. 74%. Uh, uh, what, so give me an idea of the cost of buying. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's really not an easy um, process. It can be actually quite financially burdensome. Um, I guess for a sense of comparison, formula typically costs around 8 to 31 cents an ounce. And given that, you know, I think it's a three-month-old baby will consume um, 30 ounces a day, that amounts to maybe as much as $10 a day to feed that child. informally shared milk uh, can be free um, on certain sites where you just pay for shipping, right. although you know it's not screened, it's not medically safe, but you can also have to pay as much as $4 for some of that milk, which adds up to about $120 a day. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. Wow. 844-724-8255. I want you to stay with us for the rest of the hour. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah, that thank okay you. Because <laughs> we have lots of questions here. Um, Emily, what what do you think about this breast milk uh, market? I mean, so this is a super interesting market. I mean, economists like markets. Um, you know, I I think there's a sense in which like we have generated a, a 
an attitude that breast milk is so sacred and so mm-hmm. important that you would be better off giving your kid breast milk that has bacteria in it than you would giving them formula. And I think that that's, that's probably in many cases not true. Uh, and I, I think it is part of this kind of cult around breastfeeding. And I, I, I do think that we... It is maybe a byproduct of some of the the claims that are made that that are not all as well supported in in the evidence. Mm-hmm. Here, I, I would rather have us spend more time helping women right. try to breastfeed and then not yeah. shaming them if they can't. Mm-hmm. Here's a tweet from Kara says: Has Dr. Oster looked at any research about cannabis use and breastfeeding as marijuana restrictions loosen? No. It, go ahead. No, uh, well, uh, Nikita, have you come across this in talk in talking with mo- moms looking for breast milk that, that this is a concern of theirs? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely not the first time I've sort of heard this type of question. Um, what we tend to do is actually for this study, we were looking a lot on parenting blogs, which influence a lot of the parenting advice, like um, you were saying, Dr. Ostra, and so. Um, we found a lot of questions about um, cannabis use and breast milk and you know whether or not that's an issue. And for, unfortunately, I haven't personally done any research into it, and I think more mm. research needs to be done, but I would, you know, uh, I think yeah. it's... You would think, Emily, that this is sure, sure is going to come up with the loosening of uh, cannabis restriction. Mm. Yeah, it is. But I think until we, until we see more time with these loosened restrictions, it's a very hard thing to study because yeah. now most of the studies would be based on a time when the cannabis use was illegal and so people don't want to tell you or the kinds of women who are using cannabis are, are sort of more different. Um, and so I think that I think we will see more of this over time, but I don't think the evidence is there yet to say either way. Mm-hmm. I agree too. I think um, I think even beyond just you know with the legalization, uh, seeing uh, cannabis in breast milk. Um, I think in general, what I've been, what I found is that there's not actually that many studies that have been done looking at informally shared milk and donor breast milk in general. Even though this has been around for I think longer than you know cannabis has started to become legal. And so I definitely think there needs to be a lot more research done in these areas so that we can, you know, give definitive recommendations and say what the science says mm. about the risks. Before we go to the phones, let me ask, uh, let me ask you, uh, Emily, uh, as, uh, as possibly soon-to-be grandparent myself, um, how do, what's the best way to treat your, you know, your mother, your father with the kid, with the newborn? You mean like how should they treat the the grandparents? Yeah, how should they treat the grandparents? How should the pa- grandparents treat the kids or the pa- or their, their kids or the grandchildren? So it's it's interesting. I don't think there's a huge amount of data uh, on this. Um, I, in I think being supportive is probably the most important thing. But I I think part of what's hard about the interactions between grandparents and grandkids is that there are there are changes in recommendations over time, and it can be. Uh, hard to to not share the experiences that you had because, of course, they're in many ways very valuable, but also in some ways outdated. So people bring this up to me all the time around the issue of back sleeping. That when you know when we were kids, you put your baby to sleep on their stomach. Right. Now the recommendation is to go to sleep on the back, and I think that a lot of people are getting sort of tension with their with their parents about that change in recommendation. You know, it worked for me. You should do this too. You said in the book that you should have a a. A frank exchange of views with your kids. Let me put it that way, and have have that discussion about how to treat each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that just talking help. talking things through. Yeah, uh, just uh, let me let me go to the phones. Speaking of talking it through, let's go to Christina in Noonan, Georgia. Hi, Christina. Hi there. How are you doing? Hi there. Go ahead. Yes, uh, my question would be basically about letting your child cry to go to sleep. 
um, what would be the recommendation about that and if there's any data that supports crying for so many minutes versus holding the baby, you know, soothing it to sleep and at what age would you recommend allowing them to cry it out? Hmm. So there's a lot of evidence on this, uh, and I think that people worry about kind of two things. One is, does it work? And the other is, is it going to damage my kid? Um, and this is a place where, unlike in some aspects, we actually have very good data, I think, because we have randomized trials, some of which follow kids until they're you know five or six, so not just two days after this happens. Um, and I think, broadly, the evidence is very reassuring. Sleep training, letting your kid cry it out does improve kids' sleep. It also improves parents' sleep and actually has pretty big effects on depression, on reducing maternal depression, improving marital satisfaction. So I think there are some reasons to to do it. Uh, in terms of long-term impacts, there, there's no evidence of negative long-term impacts or any long-term mm. impacts in any direction. So I think that for parents who, who want to do that, um, that is that is really reassuring. doesn't mean everybody's going to want to sleep train their kids. That is a pretty personal choice, and it is very hard to listen to your kid uh, cry. But it, it does have some of these these sort of good effects down the down the road in terms of improving improving sleep. There actually isn't too much guidance about which of the many different technologies um, should you go in every three minutes, should you go in every 10 minutes, should you not go in at all. All of these things seem to work kind of fine. Mm. You sort of like pick a lane and, and stick with it. Um, and that's that's kind of what the guidance is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nikita, you also looked at the history of wet nursing, mm-hmm. right? It, uh, it, tell, us, tell us about that. Isn't milk sharing just like a modern version yeah, so that's uh, probably nursing. Mm-hmm. You know? That's probably one of the most common uh, themes we saw in, in our study where we were um, uh, getting a lot of information from mothers who had uh, participated in milk sharing. And so we wanted to look into that so we could say definitively whether or not it is comparable. And I mean, this wet nursing has been around for so long. I mean, like centuries upon centuries, thousands of years. It's mentioned in the Bible and a lot of religious texts. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that in those ages, wet nursing was really the only way of feeding a child if the mom couldn't breastfeed personally, because there were was no formula. There were no like safe bottles. There was no pumping for later use or storing breast milk. And so, you know, it was out of necessity. And because of that, it was very, very well known. It was very common. And therefore, it was very well regulated. And so there were contracts that existed between wet nurses and uh, the families that employed them. There were medical tests that were required. And so... Um, it sort of lends itself to being more similar, actually, to the milk bank process, which is, you know, where there's medical screening, there's strict regulations, things like that, than this, you know, underground milk sharing market that's taking mm-hmm. place online. Mm-hmm. We've had some tweets from a couple of people who've said the same thing about uh, uh, Amanda says, proud milk sharer. I donated to over five families, never asked anyone for a dime. It's an act of love from one mom to another, and uh, some we've had a few similar tweets. I guess that is opposed to what you would say get the prices you were mentioning at the milk banks, right? Yes, no, definitely. I, so I mean, even milk bank because of the processes of like medical testing and things like that, it is um, quite expensive. It can be as much as three to five dollars an ounce. Um, and we have, I mean, we've encountered thousands um, of women uh, in our research who have participated in milk sharing who have donated so many ounces 
places um, and done a lot of good work. Um, and I think it's um, great, but I think that there needs to be also regulations in place that we know mm. that the risks that are um, being undertaken and we can make sure that these uh, this milk that's able to be donated can be done in a safe way, ideally through a milk bank. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with uh, Emily Oster and Nikita Sood. Um, Emily, we've, you know, basically talked, I'd say, 90% about the mothers here. Any advice, any of the research talk about fathering? Hence. Yeah, so there's... So I think, you know, one thing that I, I spent some time on in the in the book about fathers is, you know, we when we think about postpartum experiences, um, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, maternal depression and, and making sure that that women are not depressed. There's, to be clear, there's not enough emphasis on that, but there is more than on on dads. Uh, but one of the things that that I think people are increasingly recognizing is that that postpartum mental health issues can affect all of the people in the family. And I think that's a place where we could be a little more cognizant of the fact that you know when people are tired that affects their mental health in general this is a, a stressful experience and we want to be careful to to uh, be paying attention to the to the mental health of of all the parents not just the not just the birth mom any research on how much more stressful single parenting is you know there's there's not that much that i mean i think the circumstances that lead to single parenting are pretty varied, and so the answer to that is likely to vary depending on whether you're a single parent by choice or, or not by choice, um, and how involved the the other parent is. And so that even that makes it hard to to draw broad conclusions. One mm-hmm. well, Ed tweets: a baby led weaning for solid seems to be on a trend. My wife and I freak out after seeing our seven month old gag and trying solid foods. Thoughts? So the. There are a lot of different good ways to introduce uh, food to your kids, and so one of the things I think was was actually surprising to me is is I had was given when I my daughter was born I was her daughter was old enough for this I was given this sort of strict instructions about uh, rice cereal and then oatmeal and then these vegetables and all in this particular order and I think it turns out that there's no particular reason to introduce things in that in that way there's also nothing wrong with doing it uh, doing it in that way but people have increasingly been interested in this idea of baby led weaning um, it has some value because it's in some ways easier to not deal with baby food um, but people do worry that their kids gag I think the evidence suggests that it isn't dangerous um, although it also doesn't have some of these benefits like lower obesity that that people mm. have have touted so if you want to go for that that's that's great um, if you don't if it makes you nervous do something else and one thing you might do is read uh, the new book by Emily Oster her new book is crib sheet that we have so many people so much more time that we don't have. We have an excerpt of the book up at sciencefriday.com slash crib sheet. You'll also find a Nikita Sood's list of advice up there if you're a pregnant uh, parent considering buying breast milk. And that's a sciencefriday.com slash crib sheet. Thank you both, Nikki. Nikki Sood is research assistant at Cohen's Children's Medical Center, part of the Northwell Health in New Hyde Park, New York. Emily Oster, health economist at Brown University, author of Crib Sheet. Thank you both. Thank you for, for having taking me. time to be with us today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck with the book. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music and a few program notes. To all our Texas fans, the Sci-Fi crew and I will be hitting a road this August. We are coming to San Antonio. We want you to join us Saturday, August 10th for Sci- 
Science Friday Live from your great state. We're going to talk about science stories in the San Antonio area. We'll have, well, San Antonio, have live music and more. And that's Saturday, August 10th. Info and tickets at sciencefriday.com slash San Antonio. And another note, Science Friday is cooking up a new science history podcast. We want to hear what you think. So we are reaching back into the science history vaults, dusting off stories that you've never heard in school. So please help us out. Go to sciencefriday.com slash survey to hear an exclusive sneak peek of our first episode. Then answer a few questions. Your listeners, your questions, your answers will help shape this new show. We want your advice. Sciencefriday.com slash survey. Listen and tell us what you think. And thanks. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Plato in New York. Science Friday is supported by IBM. Technology is becoming more open, data more accessible, and the world more innovative. IBM is combining their industry expertise with the open source leadership of Red Hat to bring you more freedom, more security, more flexibility. Let's unlock the world's potential. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash redhat.